Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Straight Talk, Detroit's history podcast. My name is Chris Hemmler. And I'm Adam Hellebuck. And we are going to take you through the lesser known stories, the people, the places, the events of Detroit, Michigan, and the Great Lakes region. On today's episode, we will explore the epidemics and pandemics that affected Detroit and Michigan during the World War I years. And later, Adam will introduce us to DC's newest supervillain. All that and more on today's episode of Straight Talk. I can't wait. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode, hopefully the first of many, of a straight talk, S-T-R-A-I-T, for these streets of Detroit. It's pretty clever, isn't it, Chris? I think it's very clever, and uh, it seems like we've been talking about talking on a podcast for a long time, but this is the first we've actually ever sat down to, to, to try it. Yeah, and and I know that when we talked about this, we really wanted to dive into uh, Detroit history, Great Lakes history, but really focus on events, people, places, and and things that don't necessarily get uh, all the attention in mainstream kind of history sources. So um, I'm pretty excited to work with you on this. Yeah, and you know, because it was a global pandemic that that finally got us to want to do this, that (laughs) we, uh, we chose... Uh, for our first topic, uh, some epidemics uh, and pandemics in Michigan, uh, uh, specifically, you know, in the 19-teens, you know, really what we're looking at are the World War I years, um, because there's, there's kind of a lot going on uh, in terms of communicable afflictions during this time period. Yeah, and, and as we talked about this, we really both agreed that we wanted to put a, a positive uh, note on this, to really look at how these uh, epidemics brought out the best in the Detroit and Michigan community. And so really excited to, to kind of explore probably a, a, lesser, a lesser known aspect of some of these epidemics from the 19 teens uh, and, and see how, how they actually helped to bring some people together. Yeah. And that point that you made about lesser known is, is kind of what got me interested in looking into at least a, a portion of this because uh, you know, you and I are both uh, employed by the wonderful University of Liggett School. And when this Gross was... Point Woods, Michigan. In Gross Point Woods, Michigan, yes. Uh, and when, um, when, when the schools were closed down by Governor Whitmer, we had seen uh, a couple of references to the fact that one of our predecessor schools, Gross Point Country Day School, was, uh, was founded reportedly during an epidemic uh, in 1914. But the thing that kind of confused me is that the Gross Point Historical Society said it was a whooping cough epidemic, and then the city of Gross Point Woods, Michigan, on their kind of history page, said it was a typhoid epidemic. And so uh, I was kind of interested in uh, learning a little bit more about that. But one of the challenges, and I don't know if you experienced this too, Adam, is uh, in in researching when you're quarantined, is not being able to, you know, go to libraries or archives. You have to really rely on what's been uh, digitized and put on the web, but it it wasn't. I mean, it was still difficult, but I I found it to be a little bit easier than I than I thought it would be. I don't know what was your experience. Yeah, absolutely. I I uh, there were a lot of great online resources, especially uh, from the University of Michigan, uh, their their medical libraries. Looking at this, I mean, I it's probably the best time to be doing some online research now that most newspapers have been digitized. 
you know, we have a lot more digital documents. We don't have to worry about microfilm, which with my deteriorating eyesight, I can't really uh, <laughs> much anymore. Yeah. Uh, but to really look at, at these, these epidemics, I didn't even know that these epidemics existed before about a week ago, other than the 1918 influenza. Yeah, I have been teaching place-based U.S. history for five years now at Liggett, uh, where we teach U.S. history through the lens of Detroit and the Great Lakes region. And I hadn't heard of any epidemics that caused citywide quarantine during this time period. And we have two sources, one that says that there was a quarantine due to whooping cough and one that said there was a quarantine due to typhoid. And I wanted to actually look at the data and see what it said. And luckily, we, you know, we mentioned University of Michigan and the resources there. They had digitized the Detroit Board of Health bulletins during this time period. And so I was able to look at statistics related to cases and deaths for a number of diseases and afflictions. And while there was no talk of quarantine, uh, I did notice that the death rates due to whooping cough and typhoid were both high in 1913, actually, not 1914. So perhaps an outbreak in 1913 led to a 1914 quarantine. But in 1913, there were 103 whooping cough deaths, 20 deaths per 100,000 Detroiters. And in 1913, there were 163 typhoid deaths. That's 30 per 100,000 Detroiters. And if we want to put that in perspective for today, that's about the death rate per 100,000 that Wuhan, China has seen thus far in the coronavirus, which obviously that epidemic isn't over, but it really shows you how serious whooping cough and typhoid were in 1913 and 1914. Yeah, that's, it's interesting you say that because epidemiology was in such its infancy uh, back then. So to really identify you know, the, the, the causes of, of a lot of these things and how they're spreading, uh, you make a really interesting point. Um, and this chart, so, so this chart you've shared, Chris, from the Department mm-hmm. of Health, uh, just the number of diseases on here that I think, you know, today we take for granted as being gone. I mean, like, like still having f- 325 cases of smallpox in 1914 in Detroit. Yeah. Um, just, just kind of puts things in perspective of, of, of how far we've come in 100 years. You know, and I think a credit to the Detroit health system, too, where you have in most years only one one fatality, uh, very few fatalities from smallpox, even though there's hundreds of of cases. Exactly. And Detroit's public health officials were so effective because they followed the advice of the experts. In 1914, typhoid in Detroit received attention, national attention from the American Medical Association. Uh, And they wrote, quote, in our previous summaries, we have called attention to the excessively high typhoid rate in Detroit and have pointed out the probable connection with the public water supply. And so their advice to the city of Detroit was to basically use hypochlorite of lime to clean your water supply. And while it might seem pretty obvious to us today to have a clean water supply in order to stop the spread of disease, you have to remember that this is a time period where some people thought that you could use onions to clean the air of typhoid. Onions will cure typhoid fever. You take nine little onions, slice them up on a saucer and put them under the bed. Mm-hmm. And they stand there till they turn black. When they turn black, the fever's gone. You just take onions out and bury them because if you don't, anything gets them onions will get the fever. At any rate, Detroit health officials listened to the American Medical Association who later wrote, quote, 
The lowering of the typhoid rate in Detroit in 1914 is due in part, at least, to the chemical disinfection of its water supply. So while it's not clear whether it was whooping cough or typhoid that caused the quarantine in 1914, that's almost irrelevant because what's going to happen is Detroit public health officials are going to take a crisis and really use it to make Detroit a better place. Because not only do the deaths from typhoid drop by 55% uh, between 1913 and 1914, but diphtheria deaths drop 45%, scarlet fever by 54%, and deaths related to measles by 63%. So the public health officials in Detroit really take this crisis and make it into something where the city comes out better afterwards than it was before. Well, that's interesting you say that because, you know, just thinking about the geography of Detroit and the history of its founding, you know, it being put on more or less a swamp um, to really look at, at the, the quality and source of, of the water and, and make those improvements. I mean, that's, that's an interesting connection. But that respite doesn't last forever. By 1917, Detroiters have a whole new challenge to overcome. So Adam, while I was looking at the statistics for whooping cough and typhoid in 1913 and 1914, I noticed kind of a startling statistic and there was a stark increase in scarlet fever related deaths in 1917 which sent me down the rabbit hole of looking into a scarlet fever epidemic uh, in the first half of 1917 in Detroit. Scarlet fever was, was so bad that uh, it had gone from 25 deaths in 1915 up to 141 in 1917. Um, and so you have a 460-some percent increase in scarlet fever deaths within two years. And there are a couple of, a couple of interesting things that uh, that I found when looking at that is, you know, we, we've heard a lot with the current pandemic of coronavirus of COVID-19 that despite the fact that there's a lot of quarantine and stay-at-home orders, people are, are not necessarily following those. And uh, uh, the Detroit Board of Health in March of 1917 reported, another cause of the great spread of the disease, meaning scarlet fever, has been that very little attention has been paid to quarantine regulations. An investigation showed that people were going in and out of quarantine premises as they pleased and openly defying the law. And so, you know, we talk about um, there's all this blame of, you know, the younger generation today kind of openly defying these orders. It's not a new issue. I mean, it's something that that took place in 1917 as well. Yeah, that that's something, uh, I mean, really looking at the 1918 epidemic as well, and we'll look at that. Really, the the measures, it seems like, for all of these are really similar to what we're using today to try to contain these these outbreaks. Yeah, I mean, the, you're right. The, the methodology hasn't really changed all that much in the last hundred and some years. But, you know, like the typhoid issue in 1913, there's a huge positive outcome of scarlet fever. Because as the city kind of investigated these individual cases of scarlet fever, they realized that it was kind of a housing code issue. There were bathrooms right next to like water closets with holes in the ground right next to the well where people were getting their water from. And so a lot of that sewage was seeping into the well. And so people were drinking sewage water. And that was because of a lack of a, of a cohesive housing code. And so Detroit in 1917, actually starting in 1915, but in 1917, Detroit updates its housing code 
And shortly thereafter, the state of Michigan is going to follow suit and in April and update their housing code as well. And so there was a report from Lawrence uh, Viler of New York. He was kind of a leading expert on housing code and health who reported that uh, Detroit has now, so far as the public health of its citizens is concerned, the most up-to-date and complete housing regulations of any large city on this continent. And so already by May of 1917, the nation was kind of realizing that the changes Detroit made to its housing code were, were huge and were, were going to be very beneficial. And by June 15th of 1917, the scarlet fever epidemic in Detroit had abated. And uh, in fact, in June, there was not a single mention of scarlet fever in the bulletin from the Detroit Board of Health. It's not until October that they reference it again, uh, saying that in June it had abated. So, you know, again, you know, in 1913 and 1914, Detroit kind of takes a takes a good hard look at its at its water quality and then in 1917 they're going to update the housing code uh and so you know i think one of the things that we can that we can take from this is that when we put our heads together in these kind of epidemics and pandemics you know we can make changes that benefit our our area and the world for future generations how much do you think that the kind of explosion of population in detroit between 1914 and really the end of the war in 1918 uh, really has on not only the these epidemics but on on kind of the responses to them and in, in this kind of landmark housing code yeah I mean I, I think I think absolutely Detroit was kind of uh, famous for its overcrowding and uh, as more and more folks came into the city um, certain housing covenants prevented them from moving into some of the ar- larger open areas. Uh, and a lot of immigrants had to live in the same immigrant communities, and uh, African Americans uh, were were kind of limited to moving into you know Black Bottom, Paradise Valley, uh, and so because of this, this causes a lot of overcrowding uh, in a lot of these areas with with the new migrants or immigrants to to Detroit, and I think that exacerbates a lot of the epidemic, and I think it causes Detroit to take a, a good hard look at how they can solve this and how can they they can solve this quickly. And I think, I think both the response to typhoid in 1913 and the response to scarlet fever in 1917 uh, really highlights that and that kind of unique part of, of Detroit's history. And one thing you really found in this, in this epidemic is really the cooperation with private industry. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about Ford's sociological department, which kind of comes under fire for being, to use a present day term, big brother. But one thing that during the scarlet fever epidemic that Ford's sociological department does is as they were uh, investigating or some might say spying on Ford employees, uh, when they noticed health code violations, they reported them to the Detroit uh, Board of Health so that the Detroit Board of Health could come and help those people uh, in updating their homes to get them up to code or updating updating their water supply to get it to code. Uh, And so there really is a partnership between corporations and uh, and the government and we're seeing that now with all of the you know Michigan distilleries that are making hand sanitizer for uh, hospitals and all the announcements of of the automobile companies and other manufacturers that are going to be switching over to to making uh, medical equipment to to fill that need uh, and so again you know history is repeating itself uh, we saw corporations step up to the plate in uh, in 1917 and you know we're seeing it again uh, today do you think um, were those partnerships as kind of coordinated or kind of government directed as they might be today, or were they much more kind of volunteer 
Yeah, it seems like they were volunteer based. Uh, I don't think that the city of Detroit had asked Ford's uh, sociological department to make those reports. Uh, and I, you know, I believe that uh, it was Ford's education department uh, that uh, hosted a meeting that invited the Detroit Board of Health to have an open discourse on scarlet fever and what to do about it. And so it seems like that was a lot more volunteer based. Uh, and there weren't a ton of incentives at, at at this point that it was it was more of a of a collaboration and cooperation between business and and government. And again, the level of cooperation, you know, in a city that has exploded in population in a period of of about a decade, is really really uh, comforting at this time. But as, as Detroiters are kind of breathing a sigh of relief in 1917, uh, after scarlet fever abates, you know, we have the, the influenza pandemic in 1918. Uh, and I know that you took, you took a good look at that. And so, you know, how did, how did this impact Michigan and Detroit? And how did, how did the world respond to this? Because I think, you know, we've certainly seen today in the news, a lot of references to the influenza pandemic uh, in 1918 and connecting that as being the last kind of global pandemic that we've seen on this scale. Uh, so I'm interested to see how this impacted the city and, and Michigan and, and how the people responded. Yeah, and, and in a lot of ways, it's, it's like what you've just said for the previous two with the, uh, the whooping cough and the scarlet fever. Um, in 1918, uh, Michigan was also receiving a lot of uh, national attention from, you know, the Journal of the American Medical Association was writing articles frequently about it. Um, newspapers across the country were covering not just Detroit, but really Camp Custer uh, near uh, Grand Rapids, where a lot of the military outbreaks, uh, where they believe it started in, in Michigan. Uh, but, you know, just, just finding New Haven, Connecticut, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, Chicago, Louisville, all these cities are, are almost regularly writing about what's going on in Michigan and in Detroit. Just kind of another shout out, um, the, um, the UM Center for uh, the History of Medicine, uh, in partnership with the University of Michigan Libraries, has a really awesome archive on the 1918 influenza pandemic. So if you're interested in, in that, it's, it's really worth it. Um, they not only look at Detroit, but they actually tell the story of 50 cities across the United States um, and their, their story uh, during this time. And so it's interesting to see the kind of national uh, similarities across treatments and, and abatement um, and, and the kind of local uniqueness that, that comes in as well. And so you said that Detroit was focused on a lot by all these other places. Were these for similar reasons as, you know, the other epidemics uh, were hitting Detroit hard or, uh, or, is there, or is there more to it? Yeah, I mean, most of the articles are really talking about how uh, it's it's it is pandemic-like, uh, and it's it's reached you know a significant portion of the population in Michigan um, and in Detroit. Most of the time, they're reporting on actions that the city and the state are doing. Um, you know, for one thing, that the the state of Michigan shuts down entertainments um, across the board. Um, that's a, a, a kind of touchy subject at the time uh, for a lot of municipalities that that aren't necessarily as, as afflicted by, by the influenza um, as others. So it's, it, it's for a lot of the same reasons that you mentioned. It's interesting too, though, that, that this epidemic really is, is the, the bird flu. Um, apparently, according to the CDC, you know, it starts in about 1918, the spring, 
Um, and it's a variant of H1N1, which we've heard a lot about, you know, around the world. And, and globally, it is, it's actually much more deadly than World War I that's going on at the same time. You know, it's, uh, we don't really hear a lot about the pandemic outside of the United States, but it's, it's, it's really uh, massive. You know, everybody says it hits Michigan about September 23rd, uh, 1918, when um, there's a, a report at a military institution in River Rouge. They say uh, there's some influenza, and so we're going to put the place under quarantine. By October 12th, so not even a month later, there's over 300 cases a day. You know, Detroit is a manufacturing center back then, um, even more so than it is today. And during World War I, it's, it's crucial. And so I think, you know, going back to your question about national attention, having anything affect the military supply line, you know, World War One's winding down at this point, but it's no one knows when it's going to be over. Uh, and so I think the country is really interested in uh, keeping tabs on on what becomes the arsenal of democracy. Now, today we're seeing a lot of we're seeing a lot of resilience in uh, in, in many Americans. And, you know, here in Michigan, I know a lot of people are sewing masks for uh, to, to try to fill some of the some of the shortages. Uh, there's a lot of people trying to uh, help in any way that they can. Uh, are there similar stories from 1918 that that show kind of how uh, how Michigan uh, and Detroiters come to action to try to help uh, and assist in 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 fighting this? Yeah, I, there's that was actually the most fun I think from my research into this was really looking at how how people were going to to fight against this problem. And so there's a there's a quotation from the Detroit News uh, in one of their articles in October 19, 1918. Detroiters are not going to be frightened to death by the influenza epidemic if Dr. James W. Inches, health commissioner, the Department of Health, and the majority of the members of the Wayne County Medical Association have their way. It just, I, that, that quotation kind of stuck with me, that, it, that it's, it's a very active, we're not going to just sit here and, and let, this, let this roll by. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the articles that, that I read about this really do center on Dr. Inches, the Detroit health commissioner. Um, and he's really given a blank check, uh, carte blanche, to deal with this crisis. You know, the the city council, the common council at the time gives him $5,000. It's about $86,000 today and says, you know, whatever you need to do. And so, you know, Detroiters uh, and Michiganders in, in general, um, again, they're using a lot of the same treatments and, and, and measures as we would today, like, like space. Um, you know, they're there's uh, interesting articles, you know, about like just from some headlines, uh, fresh air cure checks flu among Marines. Uh, so really kind of encouraging them, them to stay outside and be far apart and, and, uh, and to stop the spread. Um, you know, keeping the soldiers from Camp Custer from entering Grand Rapids uh, seemed to, uh, seem to abate it there. They also did a lot of local limiting of crowds. And this is, um, you know, as, as Governor Whitmer just issued our stay home, uh, stay safe order on Monday, you know, the state also ordered uh, 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 all public meetings to be canceled until further notice. And, and again, the Detroit News, I, I just love how they're writing about this. They say the order will not be rescinded in any community until the menace of influenza has disappeared from the whole state when the ban will be lifted from all Michigan. So even cities that did not have uh, serious outbreaks of this were prevented from having public gatherings, um, including religious services. Um, there's, there's a lot of articles where, um, religious groups are trying to get exemptions to this rule and, and are denied that, uh, because of the, the nature of, of it, you know, um, really this wasn't limited or it was limited to entertainment. So there, I couldn't find anything on workplaces, uh, really being shut down other than the schools. 
Um, but really it was about entertainments and, and other kind of public gatherings. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of effort went into that. You know, not to take away from, from what he was able to do, but I, I can't help but say that Dr. Inches sounds like maybe the name of a DC villain that, uh, <laughs> that, you know, shrinks people to, uh, you know, mere inches and then, you know, steps on them or something like that. Well, and, and he was seen as a villain uh, by uh, a lot of gangsters during Prohibition because he's the Detroit police commissioner uh, during Prohibition. And so um, a lot of his, his claim to fame comes during that time. So Wait a sure second. He- well, hold on a second. Wait, the, guy, the guy who was charged with helping stop the influenza pandemic becomes the police commissioner to fight yes. Prohibition? Yes, yes. This guy's yeah. like, a, like a doctor of all trades then? Yeah, I think I think we might have just found episode two's content. I yeah. think so, man. <laughs> Doctor uh, Inches. Yeah, and and you know, and you can kind of see why uh, because he's he's all over these these news articles. You know, he's always making statements. Um, he's he's standing up against some some organizations that are, you know, if they are not taking his advice, uh, he's he's pretty adamant that his his recommendations be followed. You know, I mean, just just as an example, you know, that that schools in Detroit are are totally closed on October 17th, 1918. So they they shut them down. And and a lot of people said, well, wait a second. Like, that's that's a big deal. Like what? And 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 so and he not only just shut down the schools, he he had an interesting idea to mobilize the teachers of those schools to help fight the epidemic. And. Uh, you know, as I first read that, I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher. Um, I'm not, I'm not a nurse. Like I, I don't know the first thing about, about that, but, but the Detroit schools and, and the Detroit health commission really had an interesting idea with this is that the teachers would not be nurses, but they would be investigators and educators. So really kind of developing the epidemiology of this. So, you know, in a, in an article in the, in, again, in the Detroit news, um, when our network of teachers finds a nest of pneumonia cases, they will be hustled into a hospital. This will lower the death rate and prevent a lot of contagion. And so it's, it's interesting. They only did this for four days. So it was uh, about half of the workforce in Detroit of teachers. So about 1,600 teachers volunteered over the course of four days. And in that four days, they made 102,000 house calls um, and identified over 15,000 cases um, and over 400 families who needed food or medical care. Would you, do you think you would do that today? If they said, hey, listen, we need all teachers to become investigators. Let's find out where this, where COVID-19 is. Uh, if there was a similar call to action, do you think you'd, you think you'd step up? You know, I think, you know, I've been, I've been in the house now in the apartment for, this is two weeks. Um, I think I definitely would. I think I would do it. It's an interesting way to, to have people, you know, do, do their part. And, and most people at the time said that this was, this was very valuable work. This was not just kind of busy work uh, to do. There were, there were risks of this. So some of the teachers did, did catch the flu from the work. There were some questions among teachers because school officials were exempted from volunteering. You know, and, and some of the teachers said, well, wait a second. Um, you know, if I get sick while I'm doing this work, is the school still going to, am I still going to get paid? And so there's uh, one teacher had written into the free press um, on October 28th and had said uh, that teachers were eagerly scanning the morning paper to find out what else they have been volunteered to do. Uh, 
I, I was going to say that something similar happens uh, it, it, with Scarlet Fever in 1917, not with teachers, but they do uh, mobilize a lot of nurses to actually go to the houses and provide treatment or to to test for Scarlet Fever uh, in the houses to try to figure out where uh, the epidemic is at the time to try to to try to you know kind of limit it and curtail it. Um, and I think that does connect to a lot of the calls today to we need increased tests. We need to find out where this is. I don't think anyone's saying that they should mobilize teachers to do it. But a lot of people are saying that, you know, when you look at a place like Germany, you know, that is very much what they're doing. Uh, uh, and South Korea is that, you know, they are they are testing, testing, testing because they have the supply of tests to be able to to do that. And that kind of seems similar to what happens with Scarlet Fever in 1917 and with mobilizing teachers for the flu in, in 1918. Yeah, I would agree with you, definitely. And it, it wasn't limited to Detroit. Um, you know, there was, uh, I found an article from the Fall River Evening News, Fall River, Massachusetts, and teachers who were, who were furloughed uh, because of school closures there, they were encouraged to volunteer with the Red Cross and do similar things uh, because they had, quote, so much unlooked for leisure on their hands. <laughs> um, which, you know, just yeah. to, I mean, that, that could be a whole nother episode on, on teaching in, in Detroit. But, but again, you know, I think, yeah, this, this idea of being active, I think that the historical evidence supports the, the moves of, of South Korea and, and Germany. It's interesting, you know, the Detroit public school system is just like with the housing code that you mentioned, um, is a model at the at this time uh, for public school districts across the country. You know, they have highly trained professionals, and so it's interesting that that they could that they were relied upon uh, to do that important service. And again, more than half of them volunteered to do it. Um, and then, you know, the 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 bans are eventually lifted in the beginning of November. Um, you know, Detroit wants it lifted a lot sooner. Uh, but the problem is that the epidemic, as it abated in Detroit, uh, was was gathering steam in places like Grand Rapids and Bay City and Saginaw, some of the other major cities at the time. Um, and so, you know, Detroit wanted to kind of reopen the city, but the the state was adamant about keeping the entire state shut until there was a until the the pandemic had had slowed down uh, across the board. What are your major takeaways then? Uh, how can we connect this to present day? What are some things that we've seen that that, you know, that make this relevant? You know, really for me, I was struck by just how similar kind of the course of action is across all of these things. Like it's a lot of what I came across was not really related to treatment. You know, it's it, medical treatment as it were, but really kind of the preventing of its spread. You know, that, that, was, that was seen as the major way of, of kind of controlling uh, these, these outbreaks. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that when we, we think about you know, people not wanting to follow or not agreeing with certain quarantine orders or things like that, we could focus on the negative. But, you know, if you look on the other side of the coin, you see a lot of a lot of positives, a lot of resilience, a lot of collaboration, a lot of improvements to the way things are. You know, I, I think that I think that we will see that as well in a response to uh, to COVID-19. I think that we're going to see a lot of positive changes to help us, you know, kind of uh, tackle uh, future epidemics head on, and and maybe that's just blind optimism. But if we look at you know what has happened through uh, typhoid in 1914, scarlet fever in 1917, and influenza in 1918, we see a lot of this resilience and a lot of this work to make ourselves better and make ourselves more prepared. Uh, and so I think we can, if not expect, at least hope uh, that the same will will come from this. Yeah, and I, I think. 
at no time after any of these major outbreaks or major events was the city unchanged. Like every single thing changed this, the city fundamentally, changed the state fundamentally. And it'll be interesting to see with this uh, once the COVID-19 outbreak kind of uh, winds down, which it will. You know, the timeline is still nebulous, but it will. You know, what changes happen in Detroit and Michigan in the United States uh, as a result of it? You know, medically, economically, politically, it'll, it'll definitely be um, interesting to do. men and women from a disease, what the doctor called the flu. People die everywhere, death went creeping through the air. Father grown of the sick. Well, thank you, Adam. Uh, this has been uh, this has been awesome. It's fun to talk about history again. You know, it's uh, it, it's been a while, uh, yeah. and so hopefully uh, we can we can do this pretty regularly. Uh, I guess for the inaugural episode of Straight Talk, uh, on behalf of uh, Mr. Christopher Hemmler. And uh, Adam Hellbuck, we wish you a great day. Four, five plays on the internet. Five, six plays on the internet. Seven, eight plays on the internet. We on the internet. We on the internet. Four, five plays. Special thanks to the resources from the University of Michigan. Our opening and closing track are from the insanely talented James Link and Tunde and Lanarin. Transition music is from James Link. And the typhoid interview and the song Influenza were provided by the Library of Congress.